Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jolin, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Paul Silverstein to discuss his new book, Postcolonial France, Race, Islam, and the Future of the Republic, published by Pluto Press in 2018. The book explores the, dyna- the dynamics and dilemmas of the present moment of crisis and hope in France, through an exploration of recent moral panics. Dr. Silverstein is professor of anthropology at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and is also the author of Algeria in France, Transpolitics, Race, and Nation, which was published in 2004. He writes on identity politics, postcoloniality, and diasporic popular culture in France and North Africa. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining me to discuss your book. Thanks for having me, Jolan. To get our conversation started, I'd like to ask you about your intellectual path as a scholar, and then I'll ask about this specific book project. Can you tell our listeners a bit about where and with whom you studied, how you came to study France and Algeria, and what connections exist between your 2004 book, Algerian France, and this one? Uh, absolutely. Um... So this has been a project that's developed over a long period of time. Um, I started thinking about some of these questions, even back to my undergraduate days, um, where I was an undergraduate anthropology major at Princeton. Um, and this was in the early 1990s. Um, and I had read a lot of, a lot of anthropological theory, as one would. Um, I'd been reading a lot of Marshall Salins, um, his work, and I was interested in exploring what, what I saw as the limits of a political economic critique for understanding the experience of being a laboring subject, of being somebody who worked or somebody experienced the world. So we have these kind of like systemic Marxist critiques that came out of a um, kind of larger structural analysis. But, you know, I was, I was already at that time interested in kind of where, what that, you know, what that gives us kind of purchase on and where it kind of might run up against, you know, kind of uh, all sorts of cultural differences, um, all sorts of differences in the ways in which particular individuals, but particular groups kind of thought about um, what we broadly call the economy. So that was kind of where I was in my thinking as a as a twenty year old at the time, um, and and trying to think about like how would one kind of transform that you know into an empirical project? How could you? What kind of what kind of thing could I look at to get at that broader kind of set of theoretical questions? And I I and my advisor at the time was a guy named John Kelly, who was actually had been a student of Marshall Salins, and he suggested a couple of different 
places where I might explore some of these questions, both of which had to do with kind of migrant labor. Um, one was kind of going to New York and working with the un- unhoused populations, um, people who were kind of mobile in both their their in their lives. Um, and the and that and and the second, which 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 was which sounded incredibly interesting, but I, as a twenty year old, I didn't feel quite comfortable doing field work. Um, among such folk, either ethically or just pragmatically, how that would happen. So that didn't seem like that was something I could do. And then um, he also suggested, um, based on his own research, that I think about the history of, of um, migrant labor in colonial Fiji. Um, again, something um, um, I, I, I thought was super interesting. I read a little bit on it, but I didn't, I couldn't, it didn't really attach to anything I had thought about or or knew about in the past, but I had studied a lot of French history at that point, and I had and I, I did speak French, and so I started thinking about well, in what ways can I think about some of these questions about you know the experience of of, of labor, the experience of economic behavior um, in a place where different cultures came together. Um, so thinking about well, you know, there's this long experience um, the colonial. Um, history between France and Algeria, and you know, and hundreds of thousands of Algerian workers who ended up in France, um, you know, from the colonial period forward into the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. Maybe that should be what I should look at. And so, already as an undergraduate, I started thinking about this history, and I started reading everything I could at that point about um, about the, the, those relations. I remember at that time even reading uh, Pierre Bourdieu and Abdelmalek Sayad's um, 1960s explosive study that they had done, this fieldwork they had done in these. Uh, um, forced relocation camps um, um, during the Algerian War that the military, French military, had taken um, 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 farmers, um, pastoralists, basically peasants, um, in their term, from Algeria and forced them into these um, into these into these what were essentially concentration camps um, during the war um, as a as a means as a counterinsurgency tactic to try to kind of break down the Algerian res- um, opposition, the Algerian resistance, the Algerian insurrection. Um, they, this book was called Le Diacinement, the up, uprooting, um, and it was a, it was a really an incredible book to think about exactly as kind of from their point of view as um, um, these these farmers who had lived and kind of worked very strongly didn't think of what they were doing as work as such as or as a profession, and they were being kind of forced to kind of reevaluate the very categories of their life. Um, uh, is a, I'm thinking about this book because I, it was, it was um, one that I just actually um, edited and translated, and it's come out in English finally. You know, has has never been in English um, since um, since it was published in French in the '60s. In fact, barely got reproduced after that. It was a little too explosive. In any case, so even so, as an undergraduate, I started thinking about that, and I I ended up writing a thesis that was thinking about that kind of moment of um, of um, the creation of Algerian migrant labor from the colonial period to the present. So. Um, and, and then I went to graduate school and I've kind of followed this trajectory from Princeton to Chicago and um, started studying with um, anthropologists, uh, historical anthropologists like Salins or like Bernard Cohn or uh, Jean Komaroff, who are, who are students of colonialism, and uh, as well as taking courses with Arjuna Potterai, who was a um, anthropologist, who's an anthropologist of uh, thinking about kind of what he was calling at the time transnational social formations. How do you think beyond the nation state? Um, and I got very interested in thinking about, you know, how, how does a nation state come to be? How is it challenged? How, how is it transformed over time? What is the experience of kind of living as a, as, as a person of, of, of migrant or diasporic background? Um, and I, and um, I was studying Arabic at the time and doing 
um, kind of Arabic study and some preliminary research across the uh, across the Arab speak, Arabic speaking world. I was in Yemen for a while. I was thinking about you know kind of Yemen is a place that has a huge diasporic population, but also kind of um, had recently become a host for um, refugee populations from Eritrea. I kind of thought about doing a project there. Then a civil a new version of the civil war broke out, and that long term fieldwork became impossible. Then I started thinking about Lebanon. I went and spent some time in in, in Lebanon. Um, trying to think about Lebanon, Lebanon similarly as a place that was both a kind of a, a host of and a, a, of refugee and immigrant populations, but also uh, with a also a site of emigration from which you know huge Lebanese diasporas around the world. And similarly, the war never seemed to quite end there, and the and it was very difficult as an American to get research permits to do research in Lebanon. So I had these all these great ideas to kind of do you know do these projects elsewhere, but I end up. Um, I ended up coming back to the French project um, in part um, because it was, again, I had the resources to do so. I'd been spending time in Paris in the meantime, um, and I got, I was still interested in kind of tracing what had been a historical project into the present experience of being of, if you will, migrant background. Um, and I, and, and so the first book, um, and so that became a dissertation project, which eventually became, after many iterations later, my first book, um, the Algerian France book. And it ended up being, and what I was trying to do there was to do an ethnography of a Algerian community in Paris, and that's a complicated thing because there's no single Algerian community. Um, there's no group of Algerians; they don't live in a single place. Or all this—it's a kind of dispersed population across different kinds of. Especially, in, I was thinking I was I was looking in Paris, and so I was already making choices there. But already in Paris, it was you know we're talking about people dispersed across um, mostly the peripheries, um, and so. It became a challenge to write an eth- as a kind of fieldwork project and to think about kind of what methods do I need to kind of think about the way in which you feel Algerian, under what circumstances you come to feel Algerian in Paris, through what kind of um, institutions does that happen in what kind of places where you're going to, you know, it's moments where you go, you're, you're going to get your um, uh, your residence permit, you know, for instance, um, uh, where you're dealing, with, where you're interfacing with the state. Um, or I get, became interested in, um, various uh, cultural associations that um, and religious associations that people had formed stuff and else. I was interested in artists um, and act and a- activist artists and people doing various projects, writers, um, cartoonists, um, um, dispersed as they were across it, that they were kind of creating some of the, that the, the associations, these artists, these these projects, these these moments, these events, celebrations became the glue, came became the kind of the the means by which a, a sense of being Algerian, but within the French landscape, came together. Um, as I started the research, um, uh, this was in, again in, now in the mid '90s. Um, there was the civil war in Algeria, what you might call a civil war in Algeria, was in full swing. Um, and this was a, uh, a uh, there's a this was an insurgency um, that was occurring um, and a counterinsurgency by the government, and it was a mess. And you know, in every sense, and it you know, it over the course of a of a decade, what's called the Black Decade, um, an estimated 100, 100, 150,000 people were killed in the various violence that was occurring across the Algerian countryside. And and this was not only producing a huge amount of people who were essentially taking refuge wherever they could, including in Paris. So you had a lot of Algerian intellectuals, Algerian students, Algerian. Um, journalists, um, just anybody who had family in France kind of making their way to get out of the, this kind of violent situation in Algeria. But it also um, turned people's attention to Algeria. 
um, even people who were born in France to, you know, to Algerian parents or grandparents who would spend like a good chunk of their youth trying to be French or and, and maybe trying and failing and, and at least like not really wanting anything to do with their, 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 their parents and grandparents background. Suddenly they found themselves kind of, kind of, um, uh, energized, um, um, brought in by the situation that was kind of all consuming because it was not only in the media, but it was in people's lives. It was in family stories. It was in every communication they were having with them. Um, and in the midst of this war, there were both um, very strong kinds of movements around identity that were occurring both around um, Muslim identity and the kind of, um, kind of what you might call a kind of, um, yeah, an Islamic revival that was happening a kind of, of course, across the Muslim world, but um, this was pretty strong in Algeria and with Algerian populations in France, but also um, a rising Amazir or Berber, what was used to be called Berber um, identity movement. That was all the more, that had started, you know, kind of, well, I mean, you could trace it back to the late 60s, um, but um, certainly, um it had started, you know, kind of as a movement in the early 80s, but really was accelerated during the war because of the needs of these communities to protect themselves, especially in a place like Kabylia from uh, Kabylia, which is a uh, Amazir region in eastern Algeria, from the attacks that were happening from the outside, both from government forces and also from the Islamist insurgency. And and all that which was happening, these this kind of you know, kind of war that was happening in Algeria was all had all these spillover effects in France. So part of what I was trying to do in that book, The Algerian France, is think about the way in which a kind of something, events occurring elsewhere kind of play out in your space. Um, and what that means for, you know, for people who themselves feel connected to that area in one way or the other. Um, how do they kind of respond to that? How do they, how does that orient their things? And especially as um, in the midst of a kind of world of an evolving kind of world of France that was treating them as people of as as people of Algerian descent, as Muslims, as different, and they were feeling that racism at the same time. So it's this kind of this this experience of exclusion and this other experience of this all-consuming kind of conflict. These events happening elsewhere. How do those intersect in the lives of people? So it was an, it was an ethnographic attempt to capture that moment, if you will, of the mid nineteen nineties um, there. Um, that's what ethnographies do. They capture a moment and they try to kind of trace the emergence of that moment to various, um, to various kinds of um, historical events, to various kinds of historical processes. I think of eth- ethnography in some ways as a genealogy of the present. You're trying to ex- kind of explain the present in part by providing some sense of how that present came to be. Um, and that's a little bit my historical anthropology training. Um, so that was that was what that first book was. Um, again, and there's different ways to describe it, but that's at least one way one might describe it. When I was thinking about, um, of course, I wrote the I, re- I wrote the book. It got published, and of course, events continued to occur. And the situation in France for 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 French people of color, Muslims or um, people of other kinds of immigrant background, if you will, um, became seemed to get getting worse and worse. Um, there's, you know, a new kind of various kinds of conservative um, forces in defense of the French Republic kind of became inc- increasingly articulate, both on the, what we call the left and the right, um, both the xenophobic far right that continued to blame um, people of immigrant descent for and Muslims for, you know, all the problems of France and, and, and on the left, too, which is to say in the kind of the secular um, Republican um, so-called left, um, where um, there's increasing anxieties about what is the future of this social compact um, 
that treats every, that 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 ostensibly kind of you know um, ostensibly um, builds a relationship between you as an individual and the state in the face of what seems to be these sectarian tendencies, these communitarian tendencies, as they would say, of groups that um, that of communities, people um, of of uh, especially Muslim groups, they were very, you know, it seems to be the center of the concern, who seem to want to kind of cleave out an area where they can live a kind of their own cultural lives separate from France. So the sense of like a fragmentation of France became ever present in the public discourse and kind of led to a series of kind of legal measures to kind of ensure or to attempt to ensure a kind of, you know, they would say an inclusivity or democracy or individualization of the public space, which is to say like laws against veiling, laws against um, against public prayer, laws that kind of tried to insulate and keep the public space to be a secular space. Um, this was happening alongside uh, um, some increasingly, uh, both, both, both increasingly outspoken um, people of, of color and Muslim French who no longer, you know, who didn't want to play this game, who were, didn't want to play the game of just, you know, being, you know, good, good, like, you know, secular French citizens, but were increasingly outspoken um, in their, in their public demands for recognition, their public demands for their rights as, um, as, as citizens of France who wanted to take, um, have agency in the future of, of, of France. Um, and then, and then, and and in some cases, you know, and we're fed up with things like police violence. Um, so, most famously, in two thousand five, a series of uprisings occurred across the the peripheries of of, of the major cities in France, um, the banlieue, um, where you know residents basically, after the police killing of a, or the the after the death of a couple of um, young kids who were running away from the from um, the police. Uh, they rose up and you know said enough essentially, and that kind of spread across this. This led, of course, to all sorts of like you know more policing and more surveillance and more you know laws that you know against incivility um, that just seemed to make things worse. Um, every time there was, and and there's a series of other kinds of uprisings or um, viol- moments of violence, um, including um, around the. Um, the publishing of cartoon of the cartoons um, of these Islamophobic cartoons by Charlie Hebdo, and then the kind of violence that was brought on against the uh, against the editors and cartoonists. Um, uh, some attacks in um, 2015 as well in Paris. Um, e- after each of these moments, we saw uh, there was these upsurges of um, of um, Islamophobic rhetoric um, and. Um, Kind of protectiveness um, around the future of the republic. I wanted to. I wanted to get a. I wanted to in the second book kind of try to kind of get a sense of this moment. What's going on in France? Why are these things? Why is the why is the discourse so strong? Why are you know a, a small number of people being blamed for all of society's problems? Um, and and how is it that people are taking action and voice? I wanted to do in this book kind of present some portraits and and I try to do this at the end of each chapter of various artists and activists. Um, of various different backgrounds, um, Muslim and Jewish, um, black and brown, um, men and women, who have kind of in, very, in various ways um, um, tried to actively chart uh, or imagine a different way of being French and, French and Muslim, French and Jewish, French and whatever. And some of those are doubling down on the secularist principles. Some of those are pushing back strongly against them. 
And some of those are cre creative in all sorts of other ways. So that's what, in large part, um, how I see the relationship between the two books. Thank you for that response. And I hope that we can definitely touch on um, sort of some of the details of how your interlocutors are responding to uh, pundits or commentators' um, reactions to immigration and or the revolt, et cetera, a little bit later as well. For now, I'd like to get into the content of the text itself. Uh, the title of your book is Post-Colonial France. And very quickly, the reader, or this reader at least, understands this title, at least in some reading of it, to be playful or missing punctuation, perhaps. As you state on the second page of the introduction, and here I will quote you at length, the putative demise of France's overseas empire did not bring about the end of colonial relations or their entailments. The colonial situation remains written into the French landscape through the very structures and institutions forged in imperial times. In its present multiracial and multicultural demography, its architecture and urban plans, its fashions and customs, its security regimes and policing practices, its governmental mode of political liberalism. Can you clarify for our listeners, as you do in the book, what exactly the prefix post in post-colonial is meant to imply and what it doesn't imply? I can certainly try. I don't know if I can say it much better than what I, what the, the paragraph you quoted, uh, which is, I know there's a lot going on in that paragraph. Um, and and I, I recognize that um, this is a book that um, I tried to pack a lot in a very few words. Um, I was trying to keep it very short. I was trying to write a book that was public facing um, and not simply an ethnography for scholars. Um, one that got at a lot of issues, but didn't sacrifice complexity in the process, didn't simplify just simply to make it easier for readers. So it was a kind of fine line I was trying to do, and that often meant, as I look back now, very long sentences. Um, um, hopefully, um, I tried to publish it. I, I should say I, I, I end up writing the book um, and, and very much wanted to publish it overseas, not in the U.S., not in the U.S. academic press, but in a British one, um, to bring in a kind of broader European audience and to kind of bring in a, a dialogue with European scholars, um, which, I, which I'd been having for some time. Um, but which I wanted to kind of increase. And um, Pluto Press is, um, is really great about um, having a kind of activist reach, um, much more so. I mean, it's the former press of the Socialist Workers' Party, um, among other things. Um, and, and one which I had kind of worked with indirectly because of my work with the Middle East Research and Information Project, which is a, um, an organization that's existed since the early 1970s um, to try to prevent present at least for a North American audience though with increasing with also a kind of bit of a global reach um, an alternate critical analysis of um, events in the Middle East and North Africa um, so um, Pluto press was on my radar as a result and I was kind of I, and some of the some of the actual pieces that end up being the chapters of the book started off as kinds of as small blog posts or short kind of public facing articles I was writing for Merip from the Middle East um, re Middle East um, reports or Middle East Research and Information Project. So that's a little bit also a part of the origin of this project. Um, sorry, I didn't get to it in the last question, but um, uh, uh, the um, but back to, to 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 answer your question about the the post and the post colonial um, 
this is, uh, you know, in, in a sense, because I was writing it for Pluto Press, I actually wanted to, the original title I wanted to call it was Wither Postcolonial France, um, playing on um, Leon Trotsky's Wither France, which was a book, uh, an essay that he wrote in the 1930s, um, trying to, you know, kind of really wondering where France was, this icon of revol- the revolution in this moment where there seemed to be a rise of fascism across Europe um, and whether France was going to go fascist or whether it was going to, you know, and follow Italy and Germany or whether it was going to um, kind of draw on its revolutionary roots and the strong kind of communist and socialist um, activism that was still ongoing and kind of follow Russia in its, you know, the Soviet Union in that direction. Um, and I, um, I really felt that, that that was the kind of, we were in a kind of similar space in France in the present, that the forces of 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 nationalism and neo-nationalism have kind of risen and continue to be strong, such that you know, such that Marine Le Pen and the new new version of the Front National, the new version of the her father's National Front, um, still garners some huge percentage of the votes in the presidential election, um, as well as in European elections, um, and uh, and 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 even you might say within the secular republic, it's kind of been, um, in some sense, drawn towards that anti-immigrant discourse um, and a kind of very hyper-conservative notion of what makes France, France, not necessarily based on a culturalist notion as the Front National or the, the, the far right might draw upon, you know, drawn on its Christian or rural roots, but more on its kind of notion of a secular republic that comes out of the, really less out of, as much out of the revolution as on the third republic and um, the reforms that the radical Republican reforms that happened at the end of the 19th century, holding on to that roots. There's that kind of hyper-conservative is like one possibility of France, which is an exclusive France, a France that excludes people of, um, people of color, people coming from different um, historical cultural experiences, people you know, who, are, who, might be, who, might, who are no longer feel comfortable or, or in some cases are not able to express themselves as they are to take care Versus a kind of strongly um, rising, as I saw it, um, possibility of a of a truly, if you will, post-colonial France, a France that like has a, a true sense of its of its historical genealogy within colonialism and slavery that is not afraid of that genealogy, but builds on it to understand a kind of the 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 burden towards um, the historical burden towards um, inc- truly including. Um, a multiplicity of, pos- of of backgrounds, a, multi- a multiplicity of um, ways of being into a project. To be a truly inclusive France, a truly post-colonial France was the other kind of possibility. So in some sense, I'm using post-colonial to refer to people, to those who, 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 who come from, who represent these different kind of histories, these different parts of France that have always been part of France, um, but, and, and, and who, um, who are um, increasingly vocal and increasingly active in kind of pushing that vision of France. And now this, in, in some sense, this is borrowing from a uh, kind of language of identity politics that's coming from um, the United States in many cases, um, uh, or at least an awareness of kind of like other kind of parallel movements that are happening around the globe. So it's also a kind of, there's this kind of sense of a of kind of decolonial um, perspective, as we might call it now as well. Um, so that's one kind of sense of post-colonial France is kind of pointing towards this one, perhaps this one possibility, whether post-colonial France in some senses, like, could there be a possibility of a truly post-colonial France? Um, 
the term itself, postcolonial, um, is often misunderstood, at least as I read it. Some people read the post part of postcolonial as meaning af- simply after colonialism. And it seems to imply that colonialism was relegated to a distant past. And postcolonial studies, as I under- as I've always understood it as it's emerged from um, you know, subaltern studies in South Asia, you know, and, 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 and a focus on um, the history of colonialism in South Asia, but also in Africa, um, was actually trying to say the opposite, was saying that actually we we call it, we we want to kind of kind of call attention to the fact that our present is deeply tied to that colonial past. Um, that as 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 um, the quote you read from the the structures, the structures, the institutions, the categories of belonging, um, our very demographies um, draw you know have these ties um, that you can be traced to um, uh, to uh, to the history of colonialism, um, and we can't you can't ignore that because its structures are present. Um, and, and so in some sense, like the post is kind of ironic, if you will. I think that's what you're saying because we're not, it's not, in some ways saying that we're not post in the sense of being past colonialism, but colonialism is still with us. Um, for other critics of the term, it seems to imply that, you know, by, by, by it's that, that there's something, it seems to ignore the fact how colonial the present is. Um, uh, and, and to that, I would say something to the extent of, um, while we recognize and we need to pay attention to precisely the ways in which colonial, the colonial history continues to imbue our present, um, we are not living in a world of colonial empires as we have in the past. Um, I mean, the, 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 the colonial imperialism was built around, uh, um, a series of structures and institutions of primitive accumulation of land and resources. Um, it was tied to an ideological project, a racialized ideological project, sometimes called a civilizing project or civilizing mission in which kind of European powers or you know, the global North felt it had a mission and a duty to bring, um, it, to bring light to the, you know, the dark continents as it, you know, in, in the language at the time. Um, it was uh, it was it was built in a world of other empires where the standard of sovereignty was not the nation state, or if it was a nation state, it was a nation state that was always an, already an imperial nation state, and, and and so it didn't assume that everybody was simply a citizen of a given sovereign, but 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 it assumed all sorts of different gradations of 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 subjectivity of of you know of of relations of subjecthood to. A sovereign. That was the world of colonialism, and that's a world that we are not part of anymore. Um, uh, it's for we're we're, which is not to say that there aren't perhaps you could say neo-colonial relations between parts of the global north and the global south that are still about um, exploitation and still about kind of profit uh, for sure. Um, but that's not the kind of that's not the that, that's not no longer the hegemonic setup, if you will, of the of the world. Um, at least as I've um, I've come to see it. So, um, so in some sense, the uh, what I'm trying to get at with the postcolonial is 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 both pointing to the kind of, if you will, certain kinds of continuities, con- not continuities without a difference, continuities that have changed over time. The way in which colonial categories have themselves been remade in the present, um, while paying attention to those ways in which they're remade. So you pay attention simultaneously to the genealogy, but also to the transformations. 
that's what you're, that's what, you know, that's what I'm trying to get at, at, you know, with that, you could have put the post with a hyphen, you could have put it in parentheses. Um, I'm trying to, I was trying to keep things a little simpler, but um, of course, all good deeds go on, go punished, um, something like that. Well, I think you, I think you explained it quite well in the introduction of the text and you, and you show how it sort of structures the various chapters of this book. Uh, I think that worked. Uh, throughout the book, you use the term Muslim, French, women, men and women of color. Muslim, French, men and women of color to describe some of your interlocutors. Can you talk to me about this term, about the so-called foreign import of American wokeism, as some put it, especially recently in Fred's, um, the presidential elections, uh, discourse around that? And what considerations went into using this specific term and not other related ones? It's a good question. And one I thought about a lot as I was writing the book, um, part of what I was trying to do in post-colonial France versus in Algerian France is to pull back from a specifically kind of Algerian, a world of Al- kind of Algerianness, if you will, a world of Al- people of Algerian and Franco-Algerian um, background. French Algerian background, and to think about kind of the larger dynamics which people, whether you're Algerian, North African, um, you know, have uh, families from Sub-Saharan Africa, from South Asia, wherever it may be, um, if you're you know non-white, non-European, whatever those terms have come to mean in the French discourse, you know, if you you're you're marginalized um, and kind of marked as kind of other in France, what's that experience like? And I, I you know, and and the the goal was to kind of pull back to understand the commonality of experience across this. Now, part of that has is specifically about being Muslim and the kind of way in which particular forms of Islamophobia and Islam in particular gets kind of held up as the problem, as a source of anxiety for the future of France. Um, and in that sense, I was trying to, even within that term, it's it, even within that category of people who are Muslim, but live in France, who are, you know, live in France, who are French, trying to come up with a term is difficult. Um, and there's a whole the kind of debate within, you know, among people who think about these things a lot about whether and among people, um, who, uh, people who, who consider themselves Muslim in France about what would be what is the right term, you know, Muslims of France, Muslims in France, French Muslims, Muslim French, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it goes, I mean, both in the in, in French and in English, this term is much debated. And each of these instances, each of each version has some positive sides to it, you know, some some benefits and some weaknesses. Um, um, and and one of the um, one of the scholars who I look to for for this question, who I really like, and whose work I've been you know I've been dialogue with a long time, is Mayanthi Fernando, and she pushed really hard to refer to um, based on her work with with particularly with pious Muslims in France, um, young young people um, who were part of you know what's sometimes called the Islamic revival. Um, she pushed hard for. Uh, um, uh, the term Muslim French citizens, um, as opposed to French Muslim, or as opposed to Muslims in France, Muslims, you know, Muslims of France, et cetera, et cetera. And Muslim French, she, and, and she kind of liked it because it was pushing back against, and I agree, it, it kind of what, it, what, what, the, what the term like that does is it pushes back against this Republican conceit that there is no hyphenation, that you cannot be a hyphenated French person, that you're French or you're not French. That your Frenchness comes from your relationship to the state qua individual, and that there's no the mediation of community has no place within the kind of public political sphere. That's the kind of setup, um, and a lot of defensiveness around that. 
Um, so to to push back against that, to use a term that essentially kind of re-puts that hyphenation into it, to say, yeah, you, the, to, to emphasize kind of Frenchness, you are a French citizen, but your French citizen is mediated through a, for, through Islam, through a Muslimness was kind of, you know, seemed a, a nice kind of provocative way of talking about it. So there's a kind of provocation there, but it also captures, again, like I, th- I think what people who are kind of believers, who are pious in various ways, um, with various degrees of piousness and kind of incorporation of that piety into their everyday practices, how they kind of particularly think of themselves. But not everybody I was, I was trying to kind of talk about, you know, I was trying to, um, not everybody who kind of represents this kind of post-colonial France in this kind of aspirational sense of an inclusive, um, uh, as an inclusive France, um, a truly inclusive France. Uh, not everybody is, of course, of Muslim descent. Not everybody would consider themselves Muslim. Not everybody kind of comes from that kind of, are the, these um, relatively pious um, interlocutors with whom uh, my, my author Fernando worked. Many of, many of them, are, of course, like, you know, have very different backgrounds or consider themselves secular or Christian, whatever. And I wanted to kind of also kind of, but, but they themselves are subject to being marked as other, subject to various kinds of racism, subject to various kinds of um, exclusion. To police violence, to policing and police violence. This is this is a large number of people, and, and it's like you know, I wanted to the book to also speak to their experiences as well. So I had to come up. So one would have to come up with a term that can bring all that together. Now, the way it's been talked about, especially in the sociological literature, whether in France or as in the United States, is through the the, the term immigrant. People talk about people as being of immigrant descent or second generation immigrants or third generation immigrants. And the problem with this language for me, even though sometimes I will say people of post-colonial immigrant background or something like that, I'll sometimes create a formulation like that, which I think I borrowed from somebody like Abdelali Hajat and some other scholars in, in France of themselves of um, with that who, who, who would consider themselves um, of that <laughs> identification category, that diacritic they use. Um, the problem with any term that I could come up with that had the word immigrant in it is it is it is it, is it, it becomes an exclusionary category. It says you're not really French, you're an immigrant. So even if you're second generation, third generation, somehow like you're always an immigrant. I and mean, so the, so I came to and this is my reading a little bit of Abdelmalek Sayyad and his kind of critical take um, again back in the which he was writing in the 80s and 90s, um, really in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s. Sorry, um, where he basically said like, you know, for these folk who come in, you're not only an immigrant for life, but you pass down that stigma. And he called it, he used this language of stigma, you know, drawing on Goffman and others. You pass down the stigma to your children. And so your children are stigmatized by your own kind of, your own migrant history. Um, and so, you know, in a little bit, the first chapter of the book is, I try to kind of unpack the meaning of that. What does it mean to have this kind of, to be, to be a mobile subject, to be considered to be, you know, having come from someplace and not rooted in a place. Um, so I wanted to come up with a term that didn't use immigrant in it. <laughs> that didn't, that didn't, uh, that, 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 that had a, a sense that was inclusive um, and all that. And so, and, and, and that was also slightly provocative that pushed back and wasn't, wasn't beholden to a French Republican discourse. Um, and so that, that that's a little bit why I kind of um, came up with this. I mean, and I actually I don't, I'm not sure if I how often I use Muslim French men and women of color. I sometimes talk about Muslim French, and then I talk about French men women of color. I, I think I think I sometimes maybe bring those together as a single term, but um, but yeah. So and and it, you know and 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 the reality is that 
um, what would also made me feel okay about using a term that is clearly has this like Anglo American side to it of color is, is one because, I mean, two things, one, because in France today, young people look, you know, are not, are part of a global discussion. They're, they're, you know, in terms of the media they consume, in terms of the networks they're part of, in terms of the conversations they're having, they're not limited to, you know, a Franco-French world. Um, they're multi, you know, these, these are folks who are multilingual. Many of them are young people are learning, you know, are, 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 are more than competent in English. You know, they're looking, you know, and they're, you know, they've taken in and transformed categories that are coming from elsewhere, including from the United States. So a kind of an idea, you can't talk, you know, you might think about identity politics as some sort of U.S. or maybe British U.S. kind of invention, but it's really kind of a global kind of discourse at this point. And I want to kind of, kind of emphasize that. And that's changed dramatically the kind of public nature, the ability to kind of speak in these terms or to even kind of have kind of, you know, conversations about, about blackness and all this. When, you know, if I, when I was a student um, and doing my research in France in the 1990s, if I used any of these kinds of terms or even you know, language of post-coloniality, I was immediately accused of importing um, exogenous categories of, of, of conflating the U S with um, France of, somehow like not being ethnographically sensitive to the way things play out. And, and that's true if you think of France as only that Republican discourse. But like in the public sphere right now, there's all sorts of other competing discourses, including one of identity politics, including one of a decolonial perspective, including like, you know, all these things that, are, that, have a, that go well beyond France, which, you know, is, 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 is threatening. But yeah. Sure. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say that certainly rings true in my experience living in France. I met this past spring someone who is German living in France, had never been on the North or South American continent, according to this person, and had participated in a Black Lives Matter protest um, a couple of years ago, um, calling it a Black Lives Matter protest, not translating those words. Um, so I'd like to go just dive into the first chapter of the book a little bit, which, as you note, is called Mobile Subjects. The first chapter connects transnational social formations to racialized discourse on immigrants. And you argue, and I'd like to quote you again at length, that while French men and women of color broadly identify and are embedded within the socio-political structures of the French nation state, such belonging is largely mediated through ongoing processes of maintaining overseas connections. Finding a home in France, in other words, depends on the very capacity to physically and psychically transcend its borders. And you call this everyday transnationalism. And so my question is, what are the larger implications of naming this mode of relating to the French border as such? And I imagine this relates to your 2004 book, where you talk about trans politics. Um, but I'm also trying to ask, what does this term help us understand? It's a great question. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was, you know, as many things, you're trying to capture a lot in a single term. Um, you're trying to, you know, name something. And I, I wasn't really going out of my way to trademark a concept. I was just trying to kind of use it, just find a descriptor that was, um, uh, that was, um, how do you say, that was kind of short and relatively elegant, or at least short, if not elegant. Um, 
and uh, so they, I was, and so part of what I was trying to get at was just simply the a lived reality where um, connections to elsewheres um, are happening all the time, um, and that's that's true for, of course, that's true for everybody. You might say, and this is, but it's especially true for people with fa- with families um, um, in abroad, um, and then, and I was kind of inspired. I was doing. I mean, just kind of a small piece of this. I was doing, I have a long-term extended research project that I do in southeastern Morocco, which is a kind of oasis valley, a marginal oasis valley in Morocco of Amazir speakers and um, a kind of side of strong Amazir activism. Um, it's kind of in some ways a, fo- a different kind of strain of follow-up to the 2004 book. Um, and what struck me, and they have, and, and, and this is an area like many areas of Morocco, like many areas of North Africa, many areas of the global south, that are deeply connected um, through a history of emigration, um, through a history of, um, of through essentially what you, what you might call a diaspora. And they talk about it as a kind of, dia- there is a diaspora from this valley. They would say the, you know, the, you know, they would say the ethnogad diaspora, the, you know, Khairis diaspora, you know, referring to the valley or referring to the, the group that was living there, that, that extends quite far, um, you know, um, across Europe, but even to North America and beyond. Um, and I remember living with, uh, staying with somebody um, at some point. This is now a, maybe a decade ago, and I was struck by, you know, by and, and I knew kind of they communicated with people abroad through increasing um, kinds of, you know, voice over IP and like, you know, various kinds of social media and all this. And so at that point, Skype was the thing, and Skype had just come online, and people were getting even in kind of rural areas in Morocco. Um, and these cheap internet packages where they could keep, you know, they basically unlimited data internet packages that were starting to come online. And this family had gotten one of these. They had they had enough connectivity they could do it. And they and I realized what they had done was they just kept a Skype line open, a Skype connection open directly between themselves and their kids who were living in various parts around the world. So you had this like ongoing Skype connection that they just never shut down. And Occasionally, people would pop up in front of the screen and they would say hi to each other. And, uh, you know, they sit there in front of them and peel potatoes and make dinner or whatever they're doing. Um, and they would keep it open. And and I, I remember being struck by, you know, kind of both like, you know, the creativity of using the technology to do that, the way you could kind of, you know, conjoin two households and keep them deeply conjoined, you know, through this mediated technology. Um, but also that became, for me, a kind of emblematic of all sorts of other ways in which, you know, you, you people work really hard to maintain those household connectivities, even without, you know, even when the technology was much slower, or much less kind of developed. Um, um, and, and, and so that was, that was kind of an extreme version of the, that everyday transnationalism, just as a kind of empirical reality that people are living simultaneously, like here and there, um, or that here and there-ness stop becoming meaningful as kinds of um, physical locations, because you have this kind of virtual um, connection that's happening. Um, so that's, that's one piece of that everyday transnationalism. And, and then the other piece, the other piece of it, I think is also just, um, a series of, a series of kind of perspectives, um, which have to do less about, um, an organized social movement, as I was describing before, like an Amazir cultural movement, which I was studying, which is organized transnationally, very ideologically so. And it's like, look, we represent this space, which is like across all of North Africa, from the Siwa Oasis of Canary Islands to the diaspora and all this stuff. That That's a kind of like ideological statement of a transnational formation that's kind of 
that's set up against, you know, in defiance of um, in opposition to the what they see as the artificial borders between Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, you know, the, Spain, you know, that that's but so that's that's a more ideological. But the everyday version of it is something like um, I live in a world of connections. I have all these resources. These resources I have, whether I speak, you know, I, I speak Arabic or I, you know, I, 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 I practice Islam may not be, um, you know, may not constitute a lot of social or cultural capital here in France, but they do elsewhere. And, and that those elsewheres might be just the, um, the area where my parents came from or my grandparents came from or whatever, and the, which, which I, you know, we occasionally visit um, on family vacations, but it may also be various other elsewheres. Um, that includes, for, in some cases, um, and this is something people are, are really thinking about, the ways in which people of um, uh, uh, um, French, uh, Muslim French or people of other, you know, other French and men and women of color are looking to the world um, and, are, are, and are moving out in the world in a way that's constituting a kind of diaspora in of itself, or what some people might call a double diaspora. So the number of um, people, uh, French men and women of North African descent who now live in places like Quebec or the Gulf, you know, the Persian Gulf, the, you know, in, in, in the Emirates or in Qatar and all this. I mean, it's a huge number of people and that those numbers are increasing. Um, and, you know, to the point where, you know, you might you think there's this kind of exiting Europe or exiting France becomes like part of the future people are imagining for themselves. So the everyday transnationalist is also about kind of the social and cultural capital, which um, people recognize they have um, and a way and in a kind of an imagination of an asp- of an aspirational future that may or may not be include France or may include France as just one node within something bigger. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, thank you for that response. I'd like to maybe just get a taste of some of the topics in chapter two as well. Um, I was captivated by your discussion of state management of religious expression in France, which you you lead in, in chapter two. And you talk about what pundits and commentators get wrong about laicite or state secularism in France, particularly it's a historicity and the lack of recognition of the origins of the secular project. Here you're in conversation with scholars such as Talal Assad and Sabah Mahmoud, for example. So I'm hoping you can give us a sense of some of the context of the state management of religious expression in France. And can you draw out this critique for me and explain how it weighs on the state's practices, that is to say the management of peoples in France, and on the country's colonial memory, as you stated. Again, great question. Um, a lot going on there. Um, right. <laughs> I'll try to get at a couple aspects of it, um, at least the ones that um, come to mind, at least in terms of where my thoughts are currently. Um, the, what's misunderstood, one of the major things that's misunderstood about French seculars and laïcité, sometimes that, that I might translate as state secularism to kind of just to connote its difference from the, the U.S. model of secularism, which is about separation of church and state. I mean, is that it's not a separation of church and state, first and foremost. Um, it's, uh, if, if, you, if anything, a supersession of the, of, the, of the sacred by the secular. 
It's an attempt to, it's a, or alternately put, a sick, a sick, a sacralization, a making sacred of the secular, of the state. Um, and in extreme cases, you can see that where secularism almost becomes almost a, a kind of a, 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 a religious faith um, among the truly, the true believers who like push it as if it's like almost a, a religion and try to convert people to it. Um, uh, and, 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 and some of that conversion and some of that true belief may, you may, may sound like atheism, but actually I, what the true, from the state's point of view and the state's management of religion, state's management of religion is precisely what secularism is, is about. It's about the state kind of keeping religion in its place by defining religion in a particular way to, to include some aspects of it and exclude others. Um, and as I, as I, I think you just mentioned, or as I, as I kind of stated in the, to talk about in the book via um, the work of Talal Asad and Sam Mahmoud, um, they've, you know, they're, they, they've been very interested in what is this category of religion that secularism calls forth and what they, the, the trace that the, the historical kind of genealogy they produce, which I think gets at something, is that it comes out of a rather, pro- ironically, a rather Protestant notion of what it means to be religious, that that's tied to a kind of interiority, to an inner belief, a kind of a faith, a spirit, a, a kind of um, a sense of oneself in the world and one's relationship to God as a kind of something that like you personally have and it resides at you, the individual, and it can be developed or undeveloped and all that. Um, and that's a powerful kind of, that is a powerful kind of understanding of at least some aspects of religion, but it doesn't, it doesn't really get at um what it, what um, the experiential or the the kind of uh, an Islamic understanding, um, at least among a certain number of, of 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 Muslims, is of how they are Muslim, which is not simply about I be- something a statement that comes down to I believe in God, but it's about a recognition through one's embodied actions, through one's embodied practices of the godliness of the world, <laughs> if you will, um, and the series of obligations that God has um, put out for one to live in. Um, those obligations may include obligations around modesty. They may include obligations around around behaviors, um, what you eat, um, how you interact with somebody, what language you use. Um, they may be obligations around a certain kind of you know public recognition of of God. Um, any number of these things, you know, all these things come together, and those are not things that can be just reduced to. A set of inter- a faith or a set of internal beliefs, but they're actually about kind of ex- exterior kind of signs and exterior um, practices, about kind of public practices in some cases. Um, so the, the attempt to kind of keep so 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 the state's management of Islam is an attempt to kind of, in a sense, kind of make it Protestant to kind of <laughs> reduce it to or at least to contain it within its uh, place. And if there is going to be these public expressions, that that's done like behind closed doors, if you will, um, that may be an extension of that interior to a kind of smaller communal space. Um, and, and, and there have been like very explicit attempts um, repeated by one French government after another French government to work with Muslim leaders or people they designate as such or people they, you know, the community may or may not recognize as such, but which they kind of bring on to kind of recraft what an Islam, a, a secular compatible Islam might look like, um, which often, you know, looks like some, which often like, you know, sometimes ends up being banal statements that, you know, kind of Muslims in France must obey the law of the land, but in often cases kind of ends up um, 
um, supporting um, or really set up to support a series of um, regulations that um, um, outlaw face veils or outlaw um, certain, you know, uh, uh, restrict um, um, restrict certain, uh, uh, outlaw public prayer and things like this. Um, these kinds of restrictive measures. Um, so that's that's a kind of part, and 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 to see that as uh, one might see that as you know that attempt to, to, for the state to literally set up committees that then come up with like you know that come up with almost fatwas, you know, like you know kind of collective fatwas that get you know on what what a Muslim in France should do or should not do. You might see that as somehow against secularism, but that's actually part of the secular project, and it's always been part of the secular project in some ways. Um, so that's part of the the not, so those are two aspects or several aspects of that. Secularism's non-recognition of its own parameters in history, um, and again, from the point of view of um, those in who are subject to these the state management, it puts one in a very complicated situation. Um, and again, Mayante Fernando has done some great work working with young Muslim men and women who are trying to navigate this this, this space where they're being, you know, in a sense forced to present themselves as good liberal individual subjects, you know, who have this faith and that they think, you know, and to present their Islam, their faith, Islam as a faith that they chose to have and their practices as practices, which are just, you know, which they have chosen to. And this is, this is especially the case for young women who um, are suspected of being the sub, you know, being um, the victims of patriarchy of like, you know, strong men who have violently imposed religion on them, especially when it comes to modest stress. Um, but so they have to articulate it in this language of the liberal subject, while at the same time, kind of, in you know, in the same time, um, they do, n- do not necessarily experience this as a choice, because they, you know, they, ex- they, they recognize themselves as agents, but it's an agency that's like subsumed to the agency of God. And the, you know what they wear and what they dress are not just I choose to do this. It's like no, this is what you have to do. You, so you have to you know dress modestly. You have to eat in this way. You, you you cannot drink alcohol to be a good ethical subject. So for them, they experience it not as a choice, but as an obligation. But they have to re-express it as a choice, and that's kind of puts people in a very complicated situation. An obligation, as you said to in the book, to use the language of political liberalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a kind of, so there's a double level of obligation. One is a, a kind of a, an experience obligation, a religious obligation, ethical obligation. What does it mean to be an ethical subject? What does it mean to kind of be that for yourself, for your future, for your family, for your community? And another set of obligations is what does it mean to be a subject of the, this kind of French discourse to, you know, an obligation that's a, something that's imposed upon you by a state, um, by, a, by, by your peers sometimes. And the state can act when I say the state, I'm not talking about like the state doesn't present itself as a state. The state presents itself as a school teacher. The state presents itself as a colleague at work. The state presents itself as somebody on the street who's, who's acting as a gatekeeper in their kind of, um, in their regular, you know, in their critique of you for what you're, you know, what you're wearing and pulling off your veil in most violent sense or, you know, kind of not uh, avoiding you as a kind of marked subject because you're dressed in a modest way um, and not participating in the way. So the, the state kind of can operate by all sorts of people who speak or act on behalf of the state. I think that's a key kind of thing that we all learned. Um, I learned it from Ghassan Hajj, who wrote a brilliant book up, um, called White Nation, which is about multiculturalism in Australia and about the ways in which um, white Australians become, if you will, the managers of multiculturalism, the state managers of like, you know, the, the parameters by which difference can occur. And I think something similar to that happens in France, um, though obviously mediated through a different set of discourses and practices. 
An example of that could be some of the currents that one might hear from French feminist um, thinkers or commentators um, in relation to Muslim dress. Um, Wondering if you could touch on that, because I found that that part of your book quite interesting. I I think I learned a lot there, and I thought about things I hadn't really ever thought about. Yeah, I mean Joan Scott, who's a you know who's a wonderful um, feminist historian of um, women's um, of women's movements and women's liberation in France, um, kind of has coined the term sexualism to refer a little bit to um, the way in which um, a set of kind of secularist discourse comes um, to expect a certain um, or, or comes tied to a certain set of public kind of sexual relations, if you will. And by, by that, I mean just kind of what is expected between the relations between the sexes um, in France, um, which is which which is some sort of complicated dance um, between a kind of kind of older, almost kind of aristocratic, gentillesse kind of game of flirtation um, and a French feminist, long French feminist pushback um, against the way that they become sexualized as objects in France. Um, and, and, and part of that, um, you know, the long story of, from the sixties and seventies of, you know, uh, the French feminist movement was, uh, women's embrace of themselves as agents of their own sexuality, that they're not just like the objects of other, the sexual gaze, but they themselves are sexual actors and they themselves like can decide to, to, to dress as they want to dress and act as they want to act and be sexual objects on their own terms. Um, and that was a that was a big fight. It's an ongoing fight. Um, you know, there's there's the the Me Too movement in France. Balance ton port um, is you know has not maybe quite been as expansive as it has been in the the U.S., but nonetheless has um, has kind of rallied women who have experienced kind of sexual violence and sexual um, and and sexual assault um, and rape. Um, uh, you know, to and and not have the space to express that to um, to, to 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 give voice to to victims, um, and, and which, which, I mean, all of which is to simply to show that the, I mean, it, all of which kind of points to the fact that this is an ongoing kind of ongoing fight, you know, um, for, um, for women in France to, you know, to be, to, to, for equality, for inclusivity against kind of various kinds of sexual discriminations, whether in, in terms of employment, whether in terms of salary differences and all this stuff. So this is, the, we see this ongoing fight against, against patriarchy in France, um, but that's kind of been tied in part to this kind of embrace of kind of oneself as a sexual agent. Um, and uh, kind of then you, you know, from that perspective, you then, you, they're seeing kind of, you know, women in France veiled. They're seeing women in, in France, you know, young women in France, you know, wearing modest dress. And um, it's hard to think past the patriarchy in those situations. It's hard to see that as the kind of choice that they've made. It's hard, it seems like a, a step away from embracing one's sexual agency to one where one is denying oneself and denying oneself as a kind of active object, active subject in the world, and just being now the object of somebody else's control. Um, it takes a lot of effort, um, intellectual, um, personal kind of conversational to understand that, um, that, that, that modest dress can still be a mediator of agency. That, that, that in fact, it takes a huge amount of agency of young women in the world to dress modestly in a moment where they know that they're going to be, you know, marginalized, discriminated against maybe the objects of violence because of the way they've chosen to dress to do so 
in a classroom where a teacher might throw them out. To do so in a, you know, as they walk into a state agency, to do so as they walk down the street. And that takes an incredible amount of courage and agency. And, 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 and I, I, th- I think part of this challenge is to like recognize that courage and agency and to recognize it as not um, a threat to the feminist gains in France and to the fight for um, equality and inclusion of women within the public sphere, but rather to see it as just another means by which that fight occurs. Um, and to see the kind of feminism within that kind of Islamic decision. Right. For example, a face feel as an expression of feminine identity or femininity, um, something that you talk about in the book and that would otherwise possibly shock some um, commentators um, uh, on the subject. There is so much in this book. Um, We've talked about a couple of the threads in only two chapters, but we are going to have to wrap up our discussion. Is there anything else from the book that you'd like to highlight that I might not have asked about, but that you'd like to touch on? We've touched on, we've, we've gotten to, I think, some of the central issues. Um, I one in some of the later chapters, I do try to show how these, um, how these, some of these, what often seem like they're kind of almost intellectual debates or kind of like political debates, you know, or political kind of tensions play out um, on the ground in terms of, in terms of um, spaces where people kind of express um, or, uh, or fight for um, inclusion and agency. Um, I actually like, I, I, I actually, the, the, one of the weirdest chapters in there is a chapter I wrote on parkour. Parkour is like not the place you would go to go. You would probably think about it first plans to think about these issues. But what I loved about parkour as an example is, is a, it's really parkour is a site of taking back control over one's the space in which one lives and, you know, pushing back against the tendency to be relegated to, you know, public housing projects or to kind of, you know, kind of marginalized areas and just as like places where you're kind of housed, where you're warehoused, if you will. Um, but think about them as spaces of, of engagement, of play, of, of making them your own. Of reappropriation of the dis- of the of the of the spaces, the discourses, the institutions the state gives you, and kind of taking it your own. And and you know, of course, people who do parkour, they're they're white, they're people white French, they're people marked as non-white French, French income, but there's a disproportionate number of people of 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 you know so-called immigrant background who participate in in parkour, and 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 I think for them it's a very powerful thing. Um, so that's a, I'm just a, as a straight, small example from the book of like a. Of a, of a space where you, you, you wouldn't necessarily recognize it at first as being central. And it's not central by any means, but it becomes like, a, I think, a small place where you can see or a small set of, a small set of practices where you can see a lot playing out. Absolutely. And I had a lot of fun reading that chapter. So thank you for including it. Before we sign off here, I just want to say that I came away from the book, especially the second time reading through it, with a much richer understanding of the stakes at play in current debates about religion and freedom in France. And for that, I want to say thank you for writing it. It's also just a joy to read. And I found all the chapters really worked well together. So I definitely have to recommend it, the text to our listeners who should absolutely get their hands on a copy wherever possible. Today, like I said, we we touched on two of the seven chapters that make up the book. Uh, Not to mention the conclusion, which must not be missed, um, but also cannot be spoiled. (laughs) So I will leave it for our listeners to discover themselves.
As a final question before I let you go, Paul, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on now and what we might have to look forward to from you in the future? I've got a couple of ongoing projects. Thanks for asking, Jolan. Um, one, which, as I, I think I mentioned, um, is located in um, in southeastern Morocco. It's actually it's going back to doing an ethnography of a quite small place, but it is a super important place for thinking about the Amazir um, Berber cultural revival, um, which, again, is kind of part of a kind of broader transnational um, Amazir movement, but which plays out in a, in a, interestingly, in a very complex local environment that is with lots of different kind of racial and religious differences that exist even locally. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to finish that project. It touches on all sorts of kind of questions of, of blackness and, mas- and masculinity and a whole series of other things that are, I think are, are kind of interesting. Um, one of the spinoffs of that project is um, I, I recently translated um, a novel by a local novelist um, that was written in the early 90s um, that was never, that had a very small kind of play, but it's a brilliant novel about um, a, called Le Sacrifice des Vaches Noires. It was written in French, but trying to kind of capture um, the Amazir um, um, resonance of local life. Um, it's an ethnographic novel, but more than more than anything, it's also a political novel. It's about kind of the, it's about, it's about um, the saving of the, of an oasis from ecological destruction um, because of overpumping of the of the local aquifer and the ways in which kind of that becomes the basis by which people locally begin to become involved in the national in the anti-colonial nationalist movement. It's told from the perspective of multiple characters, um, and it gets us some really kind of interesting questions around agency, um, really theological questions around agency. It's all, if you will, a commentary on the second surat of the Quran, Al Bakara, the, the cow. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I'm bringing that's 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 I've translated that. I've you know the, the author's family is very excited for it to be published. So hopefully that'll come out um, relatively soon. And then I have a longer project um, which kind of moves out of France, uh, stays in Europe, but moves out of France, or you know kind of connects France, the the uh, and it connects the Morocco project back to France through the history of um, Moroccan labor in the mines, um, the coal mines in northern France, um, but also Belgium, Netherlands, and Germany during the second half of the 20th century. Um, from the post-war period. Um, and I'm interested there in these kind of, what became these kind of, um, these, these you know, multi, multi-ethnic, multi-religious spaces of the coal mines that were themselves kind of had internal kind of racialized division of labor, but where we're also a kind of experimental um, movement for um, class politics, um, where you saw kind of um, all sorts of ironic kind of, um, ways in which people, ironic, um, the kind of unexpected ways in which people came together uh, to fight for their rights as, as workers in like the worst, you know, most perilous conditions possible. And then, you know, what happens to to this, these worlds, these cosmopolitan, these, you know, kind of these worlds that were created when these mines, um, when these mines shut down, as they all did by the early 1990s. And what, you know, and what happens to a vision of Europe that was originally a kind of coal and steel, steel consortium in this post-industrial space, um, and 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 where is the place of those kind of of people coming from these different backgrounds in that project? Um, now, um, these mines are now a source of kind of tourism. They're a source of nostalgia. Kind of the industrial side of Europe is now kind of almost nostalgically looked upon. I mean, kind of. So I have a project. So I'm kind of inter- I've, I've been researching kind of both both archivally, but also talking with people who are involved in various ways in the mines and trying, you know, about that both about that history, but also then ethnographically, what do these mining communities and these mining worlds look like now as they're turned into sites of memory? Um, so that's, a, that's the other project. 
Okay, that's that's cool to hear about, and I am uh, definitely looking forward to that uh, seeing that upcoming work. As a reminder for our audience, my guest today has been Dr. Paul Silverstein, and we've been talking about his new book, Postcolonial France: Race, Islam, and the Future of the Republic. Thank you again, Paul, for joining me today. Thanks for having me.